This is Cleantech Talk, Clean Technica's podcast series interviewing cleantech leaders from around the world. This episode is being sponsored by Pono Home. Thank you for joining us for Cleantech Talk, uh, Clean Technica's weekly podcast. Could you just uh, maybe give us a brief bio of what you what you've done, your role in the climate climate change world in the, in uh, in the past few years, and I guess how it all started. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. My name is Nathaniel Rich. I'm a novelist and essayist. I write for I'm a writer at large for the New York Times Magazine and. A couple of years ago, uh, my editors asked me to take on a pretty unusual assignment, which was to write an entire issue-length article about climate change. And this was done in partnership with the Pulitzer Center, a, a journalistic nonprofit. And we settled on the idea of a history of this 10-year period between 1979 and 1989, when there there seemed to have been a real possibility of addressing global warming before a number of the catastrophic scenarios were baked in, as it were. And so, so I, I wrote a story focusing on a couple of people, Rafe Pomerantz, an, an activist and lobbyist in D.C., who was essentially the only full-time global warming a- activist during, during the 80s, uh, James Hansen, the NASA scientist who helped elevate the issue to national prominence, international prominence even, and a few other characters like Al Gore, uh, John Sununu uh, in the Bush White House, who, who played a major role at the end of this cycle in defeating uh, major policy. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a story of, a, of this period that's almost hard to imagine nowadays when there was scientific consensus established at the highest levels of, you know, not just scientific community, but but. U.S. government, the oil and gas industry by 1979, it was not a a partisan issue. There were Republicans and Democrats in the U.S. in support of a major policy to address the problem. And there was, in fact, a a solution that was seen at what was seen at the time as a solution, which was a global treaty to reduce carbon emissions as part of the IPCC process, the earliest phases of the IPCC process. Uh, So that piece was called Losing Earth, and it it generated an enormous, uh, staggering amount of response nationally and internationally. And we felt there was an, I felt there was an opportunity to expand the story into a book, which is now published called Losing Earth, A Recent History. And it's, it's this narrative um, expanded a bit, and it takes the story up to the present day in an afterward. And it raises some of what I feel are the larger unaddressed issues, sort of moral questions that, that are, are arisen from the climate crisis. And so that's been my work of the last few years. And the book is now published in the U.S. and, and internationally and in a number of countries as well. Yeah. So I've got a handful of questions. A few of them center around uh, that research or that time period. But uh, for, I think the first one I'll start with is um, my, uh, my bachelor's thesis in 2003-2004 was centered around this disconnect between environmental concern and environmental action, specifically focused on climate, but also other topics. And it was it's something I've, I've, I've struggled with since before that, for since the 1990s uh, until today, is this, this kind of disconnect between what we see as a crisis and what we're able or willing to do about it. And as depressing as it's been, it's also been fascinating to watch how that's changed over the past couple of decades 
maybe you could chime in a little bit on on this 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 problem of this disconnect between concern and action and how you think it's been changing in recent years. Yeah, well, one of the most that, that's also a question that that I've been somewhat obsessed by, and and it it seems almost like a failure in in rational thought that you know if we understand totally. this issue on in the right terms, you know, if we look at it honestly and squarely, we understand that this is an existential crisis, which you would think would provoke, uh, you know, reasonably among reasonable people, a response to at least do you know something dramatic, if not you know, completely transform the global economy uh, in a short amount of time. And what was one of the most fascinating things to me about the research that I did was that this question, essentially the question of, you know, is this a problem that human beings can solve? Even if we agree on all of the facts, uh, is this something we're up, up to, to managing? That question was asked as early as the late 70s by a number of uh, sort of social scientists, economists, philosophers, political scientists, even psychologists. And there, it was a handful of people, it was about 20 or 30 or 40 people whose names kept cropping up in, in these symposia and conferences that I was researching during this period. And they were always, and I spoke to a number of them, and they're always kind of on the margins of these groups because, of course, the the stars of these major, you know, the, at the time it was called the carbon dioxide problem. These, these major conferences on the carbon dioxide problem were the hard scientists, the ones who were studying clouds and you know, ocean circulation and all the rest. But in the, on the sidelines, you had these, these philosophers saying, well, hold on a minute. Let's, let's assume that the problem is as bad as you're saying it is. Let's assume the worst case scenario. And let's assume that every human being is, understands it. Can, uh, can our, our economy, our economic system uh, respond to this adequately? Can our political system, can our democracy can human psychology respond accurately? And, and basically, from whatever tack they took, whether it was through, you know, Keynesian economics or human psychology uh, or a study of, of American democracy, they tended to be pretty pessimistic. And, and they tended to essentially, you know, the, the distillation of their argument was to the effect of, well, we, you know, as a species, we are not good at responding to long-term threats. And especially threats that require any kind of sacrifice, even no matter how minor, in the short term. And that's not to say that those, you know, that our limitations can't be overcome. But yeah. but it but it, well, that understanding has been with us since the beginning of our understanding of the problem. Yeah. Well, a couple of things come to mind. Think, talk, listening to that. Oh, one is I'm sure you're familiar with David Roberts, who used to write for Grist and now writes for Vox. He, one of my favorite, perhaps my favorite article he ever wrote was about this issue of I think the discount rate and how much the discount rate for risk. How much we just really don't give a lot of weight to long-term risk, how much we just are sort of fundamentally not built to deal with long-term risk. Well, and I think of the case of like smoking, smoking cigarettes where there's, I mean, I've never been a smoker, so I can't say, but I think there's pretty moderate benefit to smoking (laughs) and obviously severe long-term risk. And yet still so many people do it. I think of the Martin Amos quote, like they say it takes 10 years off your life, but which 10 years? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it's like, 
I mean, it, it's like mind boggling a, a little bit to think about, but, but I mean, that's a very sort of discreet personalized example. When you, when you make it a, a global issue, a global problem, um, you can just see how quickly that must just not lead to action <laughs> for, for people. But um, yeah, and it, that's why it's interesting that the response to that, I think implicitly from activists and, and policy people has been to make the argument that this presents a much more immediate risk than you think, right? Yeah. This is basically James Hansen's argument in 1988 when he stands up before Congress and says global warming is here now. It's not just a theory anymore. It's in the, it's in the global record. And it's the same argument you see every summer when there are wildfires and hurricanes. Yeah. They say, see, and I think that argument obviously has had some effect. It worked to, you know, it elevated the issue in 1988 during the hottest, what was then the hottest summer in recorded history. But I do think it's ultimately limited because essentially if you're appealing, you know, I feel like if yeah. you're appealing well, to people's self-interest, well, yeah. you know, self-interest and is I how mean, we got here. And you've probably seen some of the research that shows people in a warm room are more likely to believe in global warming than people in a cold room. <laughs> And the opinions on the matter change with the seasons. It's it's yeah. wild how fickle uh, we are. But I well, I think there's a few things. One, you have with smoking, you had a very strong campaign to educate people, and can and it continues today. Uh, and it's still not perfect, but it's quite effective. And I think with with global warming and climate change, we also you have to have a very strong long term messaging campaign. And um, I think, like you said, one, one thing you can focus on is the risk of, today of, of, of wildfires, of hurricanes, of droughts, of all kinds of matters starting to hit us. You can also just focus on health. You have people like Arnold Schwarzenegger, who thinks you should just talk about health. Uh, you should not even talk about climate because what matter what will get people changing is health. Um, and then you, one issue you brought up, and I saw mentioned in the Gris article about your book was the moral argument. And that's something, in, you know, that's something Al Gore has been pushing for a long time, that we have to make this a moral argue, argument. And uh, it's something I think the right seems very good at. It's turning political issues or, or preferences, even of very special interest groups, into moral arguments that somehow people just latch on to as it fits their, as it becomes a part of their community, a part of their tribe or their narrative. So could you speak a little bit more about your thoughts on that, on, on using it, the moral argument to, to deal with the problem? That's a good point. I hadn't thought of it in terms of the, the political success that the right has had with that kind of, I mean, I tend to think of those moral arguments as being in bad faith for the most part, although perhaps not with yeah. every issue. Yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, that's I why mean, it's sort of wild how, how well they work. <laughs> right. I mean, I guess you could argue with abortion that there's, that's a good faith argument, whether or not you agree with the morality of it or the position when it comes to something like the right to own guns and say, you know, it's a little bit more dicey, but yeah, I, I think that, I think that's the way to do it. I don't think it necessarily alone will move the issue or will overcome, you know, all of the opposition that's there. But I do feel that there's been a huge failure to understand the issue in moral terms and that that failure has come at a great political and policy cost. Uh, I think if you look at the issue squarely, as we were discussing before, then the moral dimensions of it are inescapable. We're talking about untold you know, loss of life, injury, all kinds of catastrophic deleterious effects on people's lives in the present and in the future. And, and once, you, once you recognize 
that. That's the, those are the wages of, of climate change. Then the, the moral terms are inescapable. And I think that when we have had moments of transformational social change in the U.S. around you know race, around gender equality, most recently, or, or sexual equality, around even around economic inequality in earlier periods in, in American history, there has been an appeal to a higher uh, decency, a sense of right and wrong, and not, you know, that, that is paired with an economic argument, that's paired with a political argument and a legislative yeah, my, argument. My, my, I have a sub-note sub on this question, and it's people, people don't do science. <laughs> I think, right. you know, there, there's those of us who have been following this issue for a long time, gotten deep into it. We've delved into so much of the science that we, I think we have a hard time trying to imagine what it's, what a normal person's view of the topic is because they haven't delved into that science. So it's hard to imagine the perspective of someone who doesn't know at least a bit about the science. Um, so I think the thing that moral argument does is it quickly, it quickly tells the story and presents the message without having to delve into the science of it. But, but yeah, the I think it moves right past the science in, a way, in, a, in actually a way that I think we could use more of. Uh, you know, yeah. I think to, to get deep into the weeds of the science is playing up often to this sort of bad faith exercise. That yeah, and I think, you know, many of us have this, this sort of idealism about, you know, information flow, democracy, you know, um, people being educated and informed. That's that's how you solve problems when in fact you know we've seen i think we've seen more and more how how little information matters to the public i mean you look at the political situation and i think it shocked probably 90% of people who follow 90 to 95% of people who follow politics closely how far we've gone with trump and how he got elected and all of that and how much that's been just a complete messaging rather than information matter um yeah, well, just you don't even have to look at Trump. You can just look at the Democratic primary right now. Yeah. There's not people don't care so, about policy. People don't care about policy. Yeah, and the detail it's 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 about the personalities and about an emotional appeal. And I think with climate change, you don't have to be. It's not like you have to put on a show. Like the the moral question element is is really stark, and I think it's an important, crucial part of the story to tell. And so yeah. it's not even, I'm not even talking in terms of a kind of cynical marketing strategy. I, I think it's actually, if you're going to be honest about it, we have to talk about, about what we're, you know, we have to talk about the moral question. In fact, that's what the new wave of activism, I yeah. think, is doing so well. Yeah, I think I saw you presenting that um, case. Yeah, well, I mean, I think for the, I think as you were saying, in a, in a way, uh in the end, the science doesn't matter to most people. What matters to people is the the, the result, the direction, and it's they're not going to get into science because that's not what interests them. But but I covered climate science. That used to be what I covered before clean tech a decade ago, and I think one of the one of the studies that I found has has had the, the the strongest impact on me. That long term impact that I keep coming back to is there's a study showing you know not next year, not next decade, but in time with runaway climate change we get to the point where some parts of the earth, you can't, you literally can't go outside without dying. Right. <laughs> It'll be so, golf. Yeah. you have to be actually protected at any second you go outside or else you just die. So I, I think that kind of, that kind of thing has to be told as well, because people have to understand it's not just like, the, okay, it's going to get warmer. And I've, I've heard a lot of Chris, <laughs> I had a professor in graduate school, I was very critical of global warming, term, the term global warming. 
because it may sound sort of nice. Like who doesn't like right. warm weather, right? Should be global scorching or global heating or something more dramatic. But but anyway, the, the point is I think people have to understand a little bit about the results. They have to understand that we will make part, parts of the of the world unlivable in the future, that there will be tremendously more war and and migration challenges and and disease uh, for our kids, our grandkids, uh, etc. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think all that's important. And I think I think there's a lot of good work that is done on those subjects. Um, at the end of the day, if we're talking about a political process in the US, uh, most voters, if you tell them that the Persian Gulf will be uninhabitable in 30 <laughs> years, I don't think that's really going to move the needle. Um, Probably you know. best not to specify the Persian Gulf. Yeah, exactly. Right? They might even sure. Yeah. And so I think, I think, yeah, Alabama. <laughs> Oh, right. I think, that, of course, there's a role, you know, it's important for the information to be put across. I think that I think there has to be a much more comprehensive understanding of the issue as not just a niche issue, but as the connective tissue between any, you know, question of public health, immigration, foreign affairs, economics, you name it. Uh, and I think there's been a failure of journalism to make those connections um, because of the way it's so, so siloed. But in the, in the same light, I think it's important to acknowledge that the scientific story could be reduced to our energy system requires burning oil and gas and coal, and, and that has been leading to warming temperatures. And if we don't do anything about it, uh, there will be catastrophic effects. That, yeah. that for and go- me, some version of that, you could do a one sentence yeah. on the science and then move on. Yeah. Yeah. No. Well, going going back to um, a bit more back to your your work, your research, uh, the pre nineteen nineties. What's fat? Imagine you know um, Peter Sinclair does climate used to do climate crock of the week. um, These great videos on these topics, and he uncovered for for me um, that people understood the greenhouse gas effect uh, a century ago. That this was. This first came into the scientific literature a long time ago where people realized, hey, these gases trap <laughs> trap heat. And if you have a lot of them, they're going to make the earth hotter, you know. And then it, it took some time, of course, for, you know, there were different waves of understanding about this. It took time for like a strong scientific consens- consensus that we were actually causing severe, you know, global warming. But the, the science has been clear for a long time. Exxon studied in the 70s. Um, 50s. 50s, you know, it was quite quite solid by the 70s and and, and where your time and 80s where your time frame sort of focuses. And something that I think still isn't clear. I'm not 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 sure you uncovered or anyone has very specifically uncovered is how U.S. energy policy was potentially guided a little bit preemptively by fossil fuel industries in in this time earlier time period uh, we had a, we have had some articles written by alan hoffman who worked in the department of energy for decades he he um he uh advised president carter and uh he's done some great work documenting how reagan dismantled a lot of clean tech green renewable energy policy that carter was working on and how how the republicans have been sort of doing the bidding of fossil fuels since at least, you know, that time. Can you speak a little bit more about what you uncovered in that, you know, 
uh, in the Reagan Bush one yeah. era about policy and, and how, how that might have been influenced by fossil fuel industries just less clearly than, than, than you could identify or, or might not. Well, have been. Yeah, I have the whole story. I mean, that's the whole story of, of all of those questions are in, in losing earth. I mean, I guess it's the question of how much detail do you want? I mean, in, in Carter, in the Carter administration, you have this articulation of an all hands on deck energy strategy. This is in response to the oil crises of the 1970s in the Middle East. And and Carter was uh, just basically just responding to the oil crisis, not not global warming. Right? Well, he was aware of global warming. He got a memo from his science advisor, Frank Press, 1977, although even the memo acknowledges that Carter is already aware of the issue. And of course, presence had been briefed on global warming since at least Lyndon Johnson in 1965. So Carter's aware of the issue. Carter significantly, I think, understand is the, is, is the first president, maybe even the only president, you'd have to look closely at Obama's speeches on this, to understand the real, this, this moral question about, about global environmental issues. And he I gives a number of, of speeches. I sort of feel like it. Obama evolved into that more through his presidency. I, f- I feel like he got educated more and more over over his presidency on that topic. His daughters got him, I think, more into it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he, I think that's he, right. He came to see it as a very moral issue, right? Yeah, and, he, and so you have Carter talking about global warming and explaining that, you know, the U.S. has has a moral responsibility to act and that these are global problems and we have to lead, you know, bring the whole world along in addressing them. So he gets it entirely. However, as part of his, so, and he has a huge solar program. I should also say the department of energy under Carter begins a carbon dioxide office just to study global warming at the beginning of the department of energy in 77, 78. And so they have a whole division working on it. And you have the beginning of a a major U.S. solar energy policy under Carter. However, you also have the beginning of a synthetic fuels policy, which is now a largely abandoned technology, essentially to turn coal into gasoline, which is extremely carbon, you know, emitting. It's not a good idea. It's about as bad as it gets. It's like like oil sands. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, com- yeah. <laughs> it's basically as bad as it gets. And so, in fact, the first time you have global warming talked about at a Senate hearing uh, is in the synthetic fuels, is, is in a big hearing or symposium led by Congress and by the Senate in, in uh, 79, when Gordon McDonald, who's a, a major figure in the book, basically a chief scientist for the intelligence community, uh, has become very concerned about global warming. And he says that this synthetic fuels program is a disaster uh, if you were to go through with it. And so Carter, nevertheless, and Frank Press continued with the synthetic, pushed it, while at the same time talking about global warming. And, and, and there were only a couple, there were a couple of people within the White House, like Gus Speth on the Council of Environmental Quality, who said that this, this is a, con, you know, you can either go for as much independent U.S. energy as possible, or you can talk about global warming, but you can't do both. That inconsistency was never resolved because he lost a second term. Reagan came in and yes, he tore down, tore off the solar panels off of the the White House that Carter had installed. He cut funding to all these programs, the CO2 program, the solar program, all kinds of research and development. And, and then, but he did, he did sort of, he was worse at, Reagan was most destructive at the very beginning of his first term to the point where he even alienated members of his own party 
you know, when there are still environmentalists in the, in the Republican Party. And, and, you know, you do have him negotiating the ozone treaty after being, you know, brought to the table by DuPont. And is it clear why, is it clear, is it clear why he did that? Why, I mean, was it a, just a was ozone? It fossil fuel? No, the early dismantling that was it? It's fossil? not global. No, there's no evidence that I could find that it had anything to do with global warming. He, upon taking office, the seat, the Council on Environmental Quality handed him a report that included discussion of global warming in it. But there's no evidence. But it, I mean, even disconnecting it from global warming was. Do you know if it was certain advisors connected to fossil industries? Oh, it was full. Yes, it was full anti. The effort was anti-regulation, and it was industry driven. He appointed James Watt to run the Interior, who was a coal lobbyist. He appointed Ann Gorsuch to run the EPA, who was deeply deep zealot, anti-regulatory zealot, and. So it was. It was certainly it's a bad problem. issue we have of <laughs> Republicans thinking it's good to put foxes in charge of the hen house. Yes, it's exactly. <laughs> if anything, it's like Scott. It was worse than Scott Pruitt and um, Brian Zinke, and they're opening up public lands for drilling. All this, all the same stuff. In fact, he was going further because he was talking about closing the Department of Energy, shutting him, closing the EPA, and he had these huge budget cuts. So, yes, it was industry came out through, you know, industry coziness with the Republican Party, but it wasn't global warming driven. And not just, and you know, to give it, be a little fair, not just coziness, it seems like, it seems like there's just this fundamental philosophical issue that is plaguing us that there are just a lot of people in the Republican Party who think the country is better if there's not regulation, the country is better if if the industry is in charge of the regulation, if, if industry can do whatever it wants, they, they seem to just have a block seeing the problem of, you know, of, of not having decent controls on, on what industry can do to the public. Yeah, that's true. And, and so, but, but even, as I said, even Republicans in Congress said, this is too much. And they, they, some of them joined with Democrats to protest. And, and then you had a couple of years of, hearings and scandals with these appoint these industry hacks who had been appointed just as we had under Trump, all kinds of conflicts of interest. And, but you don't have, when it comes to the global warming question and industry getting involved in CO2 and climate policy, that doesn't happen until the end of the decade. And, and I learned, so the reported, I think for the first time, the, the genesis of that strategy, mm-hmm. uh, which happens after essentially after Hanson, Right. It becomes more of a focal point, yeah. Yeah, and there's by that point, there's a sense in the industry that it's inevitable right. that um, some kind of climate policy is coming down the, the track. There are 32 climate bills introduced in 1988 in Congress, bipartisan. Some of them, you know, more dramatic than the Green New Deal. Well, as today. as a fun. As a final topic, uh, one of my I often have called him my my blogging mentor is uh, Joe Rom of Climate Progress Think Progress. Um, I remember he, he had pretty scathing criticism of of uh, Obama's decision to prioritize healthcare over climate, and um, and he also he put media as I think the number two reason. Uh, Obama couldn't get something stronger on climate. Uh, you mentioned the criticism of media's coverage of the topic earlier. 
it's a very difficult fine line to walk right now with the media because obviously it's uh, attacks on on the free press on on journalism are a threat to democracy the media does a tremendous job of some political investigative journalism uh, at the same time they have this this problem of covering anything you know a lot of a lot of topics well, they're great at political investigative journalism, I say, but not at covering clean tech. We have a, I, I think they've totally lost the narrative on electric vehicles, on Tesla, the company that's actually bringing back thousands, tens of thousands of manufacturing jobs to the U.S., cleaning the air, helping protect the climate, doing all kinds of positive things. And yet they almost nonstop attack this, <laughs> this, this company when it, you know, it's like, it's a great irony. Uh, can you speak a little more about the media's role in covering energy topics, climate topics, and what you think it could do better, you know, what you would like to see your colleagues at some of the top journalistic, journalistic outfits in the world do better? Yeah, I guess I, I, I have a bit of an allergy to, to generalizing about the media as a single entity when it's like saying, yeah, it'd be like saying, you know, capitalism or the government or, white people or black, you know, it's it's such a varied landscape. Um, If you're talking about, you know, individual organizations. But there are some systemic problems in in the media industry and media coverage these days where it's... Yeah, I think they reflect systemic problems in our culture when it comes to climate change with understanding the... This this I, this basic fundamental idea that this is the fabric of the world that we live in, and you know we talked earlier about you know failure to make connections between climate, you know the, understanding how certain economic you know many of our major economic crises and public health crises and you know immigration and and even race and economic inequality have the connections with that and climate change which of course exacerbates just about every form of injustice and inequality we have and will do so increasingly in the years ahead so i think that's a problem i think that there is a failure also to write about the issue when it isn't pegged to something that's happening that moment in the daily news, you know, daily or weekly news cycle. So the idea that just because it's an existential, you know, threat and that there might not be some wildfire blazing today, it doesn't mean it's, it's not worthy of coverage. And we don't treat other subjects in that way, major social crises of our time. We don't talk about race. And it or, seems like it's something that comes down to the editorial you know, management level decisions, like, you know, deciding this is a priority that we cover because of this and not just that we respond to weather. Yeah. I think if you probably look at, you know, total mention of climate change, I think it's probably spiked in the last year. It certainly has, I know at the, at the New York times, which now has its own climate. And that's driven action. a lot by, that's driven by people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and, and activists within the political realm who are saying this has to be a priority. Yeah, and I, but I also think there's a failure. To, one, of the, one of the interesting sort of meta uh, details I came across in my research was how global warming was predominantly, if you looked in newspaper mentions of, of, of term or terms around climate change, it started out as being predominantly written about in the science, you know, pages. Uh, and then by the end of the decade, it starts, it turns to predominantly a political story. And I think 
that there's a there's a failure by a lot of writers who aren't specialists to write about the issue that persists to this day and i i think that has to do with when you talk about the industry the journalism industry the kind of intense special specialization that has occurred yeah um which obviously has some great manifestations like you know clean technica but it also means that if you're not writing if you're not a science writer then you, i yeah. think a lot of people are intimidated by even talking about the subject and that's of course a huge yeah and i think you know something i've said many times the democratization of publishing was wonderful in some respects in other respects democratizing publishing meant millions of people can publish which draws down the value of publishing of anything published so you have a, a kind of constant push downward on the value of, of any any journalistic work which then squeezes these media companies tremendously as as we know well if we've followed the media industry it's extremely squeezed financially so you have yeah. that that problem combined with a uh, kind of a societal you know shift towards you know shorter attention <laughs> you know we videos now have to be like 30 seconds not five minutes right you know you have to have a this short blip of a story because otherwise people are not going to read it and this well, kind of, these combined yeah. pressures of course not not across the board but they're sort of generic pressures that have have forced forced out you know the ability for for media out for major media outlets to have people who can really dive deeply into this subject, this subject, this subject, this, this subject. So, well, I, I think though that that the 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 reach, the success uh, in publishing terms of the piece uh, of Losing Earth for the Times is a is a pretty prominent counterexample of a thirty thousand word. People have article. a thirst for it. I think we're having <laughs> yeah. a kind of shift back. I find yeah. myself. I, I have a personal thirst for this kind of thing for for the kind of work of the the New Yorker. These kind of deep deep dives, and I. I as a director of a media site for a decade, I, I feel like I've witnessed the audience having that kind of swing back as well, where I think people want quick news and then they also want really deep dives. Yeah, and I think it's not just a matter of people wanting more detail and context and all of the rest that you can deliver in a longer article, but I think there, the response to the the response to the piece made very clear to me was that there's also a, a much stronger desire to grapple at, at a higher level, sort of an emotion, you know, emotionally and intellectually, philosophically with some of these issues and, and to go deeper into those aspects of, of you know, those, those dimensions of the issue beyond just learning, you know, get, getting more information. And I think you need a different kind of writing. As a result, I, I think there's only so much daily journalism can do, and I think that that hunger you see in 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 is a response to longer narrative pieces. Uh, and I think I think for the most part, you know, beyond the failure of, of journalism to cover the story adequately, there's also been a failure by writers, by novelists uh, and narrative nonfiction writers, yes. to grapple with what this story means for us. And I think. Filmmakers, filmmakers, yes, exactly. Producers, yeah, and I think that in some ways is is the biggest absence that we have. Because if you want to learn about, you know, I agree why hurricane cycles are erratic and might you know might be increased by climate change at certain times and not a, you know you can go into the weeds and find those articles. But if you want to understand how is this crisis changing 
the way we think about ourselves, the way we think about our society, the way we think about the future and all the rest, uh, you need a different kind of writing. And I think that literature around climate uh, has only begun to be written. And there's, it's very clear to me that there's a great desire out there among the reading public to, to grapple with these issues in a more profound way. Yeah, well, thank you so much for what you've done on it. And um, I'm sure what, what you continue to do and, and what you will do in the future. So uh, thank you for being one of those, those voices and those uh, producers of, of stories that I think is really how you capture people's attention and, and uh, stimulate action. And thank you for joining us thank for you. Clean Tech Talk. Thank you. It was, it was a thrill to be on with you. Thanks, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix.